Welcome back to the Dirsch Show. Oh, the the facts are moving so quickly. The law is supposed to be the stabilizing influence. It's supposed to have equal protection of the law. I think I've I've told you once before that the Torah, the the Bible, the Jewish uh, Bible, called by some the Old Testament, has two instructions for judges. Uh, one, uh, don't take bribes. But that comes second. The first one, and the Hebrew is lo takir ponim, do not recognize faces. Do not remove the blindfold. Don't judge people based on who they are. Don't judge people based on their race, their gender. The Bible even says don't judge people based on their poverty. It says don't put stumbling blocks before the blind, but it does don't treat the poor better than you treat the rich. Everybody has to be treated the same. And, and what I want to talk about today is how that's just not possible the way the Justice Department is set up under the United States Constitution. It was a terrible, terrible mistake. You know, the framers were wonderful. They didn't have a lot of experience in criminal law, but they were wonderful and prescient and had a lot of foresight. But they made a serious mistake in how they set up the Justice Department. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I've been saying it since I started teaching in 1964. I was making this point, and I wrote about it over the years. I'll just read you from something I wrote 25 or so years ago. But the Justice Department is schizophrenic. It's Janus with two heads pointing, in this case, in different directions. You have one attorney general, and he plays two incompatible roles, roles that cannot be reconciled. On the one hand, as I've said before, he is the minister of justice, the cabinet member whose job it is to advise the president. He's of the same party as the president. He supported the president. He can be fired at the will of the president. His job is to help the president get reelected, to make recommendations involving the administration of justice, which help this administration which support the democratic view of, of justice, for example, affirmative action, as distinguished from Republicans, many of whom are opposed to affirmative action. That's one of the jobs of the attorney general. Then he has another job. He's the chief prosecutor. He decides who gets prosecuted. He decides who doesn't get prosecuted. He decides who goes to jail, who doesn't go to jail. He decides all the issues of justice, all the issues of prosecution. Now, what if he has a situation where prosecuting a person like, let's not make it hypothetical, prosecuting Donald Trump would help his boss, the president of the United States, get reelected. And so he has two jobs to help the president get reelected and to make sure that helping the president get reelected is not in any way influencing his decision to prosecute. How can he do those two jobs together? Uh, if he does real justice and decides not to prosecute Donald Trump, then he's hurting his other job. He's not helping the president get reelected. If on the other hand, he helps the president get reelected, then he's not doing his job of doing justice without regard to politics or partisanship. And so for years, I've made the following suggestion. Here, I'll read to you from a book 
that I wrote in defense of Bill Clinton, not Trump. It's called sexual McCarthyism. I wrote it a long time ago. It was during the investigation of President Clinton in the late 1990s. What I say is that the time has come to recognize that the framers of our Constitution made a serious mistake by creating the single office of attorney general to serve two conflicting functions. This is 25 years ago I wrote this. We must bring ourselves into the 21st century by breaking these two functions into two discrete offices, the way the rest of the democratic world has done. We can begin, we can begin with out tinkering with the constitution by simply having Congress create an independent office of public prosecution within the Justice Department. The director of that office would be a civil servant appointed for a fixed term by the president with the consent of the Senate. By tradition, that person would be outside of politics, an eminent lawyer of great renown, acceptable to both parties. He or she would not be answerable to the attorney generals on issues of prosecutorial policy or on specific cases and would be removable only for good cause. Now, I also go on to say then it's not clear whether the Constitution would have to be amended to accomplish this change because Article 2 grants the president the responsibility to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. But that responsibility may be dele delegated as it has been to the attorney general. If the president were to pass uh, such a law, Congress passed it, and the president signed it, a law creating a permanent nonpartisan office of director of public prosecutions, I believe it would be held on, it would be held constitutional. I've been advocating this now for more than half a century, and the time has come to do it. During the um, during the Watergate period, there was no trust in the Justice Department. Remember what happened uh, when the Justice Department refused to go along with uh, Nixon. Nixon fired them. Saturday Night Massacre. My friend, Archibald Cox, my other friend, Philip Hyman, went along with it, um, with being fired. Um, then they appointed new people uh, to the job. But it was always kind of strange because you needed special counsel, independent counsel, uh, et cetera, because the Justice Department just couldn't do the two jobs together. And I think it's important to recognize that this is inherent within the Justice Department. This is not just Garland's problem. It's not just Ed Meese's problem back in the Nixon uh, uh, days or jo uh, uh, John uh, Mitchell's problem. That was Nixon. <clears throat> Meese was Reagan. <clears throat> it was not the problem of any individual. It was an institutional error, not only in the Constitution, but for 200 years of practice. Now, you might say it takes chutzpah for me to say, A, the Constitution is wrong. <clears throat> B, we've been doing it wrong for 200 and something years, but I'm saying it. And it's, it's self-evident that that's true. We cannot have one person performing two incompatible jobs. If this were an ordinary lawyer, that lawyer would be challenged for a conflict of interest. Uh, I'll give you another example of that. You have the New York State Attorney General runs for office, it's an elected job, runs for office on the campaign promise to get Trump, then gets elected and does everything possible to get Trump. Is that justice? Is that blindfold? Is that low takir ponim do not recognize faces? No, that's partisanship. That's what's happened to the administration of justice in the United States of America. And, and we cannot accept that. 
we cannot accept a search conducted by an FBI and attorney general that is beholden to a particular president and a particular presidential party when searches like that were not conducted when the person being suspected of mishandling classified information was a Democrat, was Hillary Clinton, and was uh, Sandy uh, Berger. We cannot accept that double standard. We cannot allow our system of justice to be turned into partisan benefit for one party over another. And if, based on the evidence that we've now seen, that we've now seen, there may be more. Who knows? Who knows what more may come out? And we have to keep an open mind. We have to have a presumption of innocence for everybody, including the attorney general. We just can't know what the situation is. Uh, but if it turns out that there is a prosecution, many in the country will simply not accept the fact that a Democratic attorney general indicted the Republican candidate potentially for president they will think it was done in order to enhance the likelihood that we would have the president who is sitting now reelected. That may not be what was intended. That may not be the subjective view of the attorney general. I don't know what's in his mind. He's a good person as far as I know. He's a decent guy. But he's sworn an oath. He's sworn an oath to protect the Constitution. Yes, we know that. But he's also essentially implicitly sworn an oath to the president to be loyal. Remember when Trump asked the head of the FBI to be loyal to him and people complained about it? He was perfectly right to do that. If you're appointed by the president, you're supposed to be loyal to the president. We shouldn't have people appointed by the president and then ask him not to be loyal to the president. Um, it's an inherent conflict of, of interest. And if there were to be a prosecution, uh, I really think that a lot of Americans would end up distrusting the results, particularly if the prosecution took place in the District of Columbia, which it would, it wouldn't take place in, in Palm Beach, Florida, even though the search was there. The investigation is being conducted in, in Washington, D.C. If, if the trial were in Washington, D.C., which the jurors would probably be 85 percent Democrats and probably 90 percent anti-Trump, the question would be, could a person who is the potential candidate for president of the United States on the Republican Party get a fair trial when he was searched by the Democratic Attorney General, when he was prosecuted by the Democratic uh, Attorney General, um, the line lawyers who would try the case, the jury would be largely Democrats. Would there be trust in that system? I don't think so. And trust in the justice system is absolutely essential. Everybody knows that justice not only must be done, it must be seen to be done. But it must be especially seen to be done, especially seen to be done. If you have different treatment of the Democratic nominee for president by a Democratic administration, and then a different treatment of the Republican nominee for president by the Democratic administration, that, that just doesn't seem right. That's why you need to go to the system that England has, the system that Israel has, the system that most European countries have. A strict division between the political holder of the minister of justice position, advisor to the prime minister, advisor to the president, 
advisor to the people who run the government, advisor to the political party that's in power. That's one job. And the other job, which is incompatible, as I've said before, who gets prosecuted and who doesn't get prosecuted. That should be a civil service job. That should be a job that's done by a nonpartisan person, a former judge, a former president of a university, a former, you know, somebody who has a great, great eminence. Um, we've had attorneys general like that. Edward Levy was picked because he was the president of the University of Chicago. He was picked by Gerald Ford to undo the damage that had been done by Richard Nixon when he appointed um, uh, John Mitchell, who was, you know, his political crony and his campaign advisor. Uh, even Reagan appointed his personal lawyer, uh, Smith, to be to be the attorney general of the United States. I mean, that was a conflict of interest because a personal lawyer knows all kinds of secrets that he can never reveal that are designed to protect the interests of Mr. Ronald Reagan. And then the attorney general should know those secrets in case any of them impinge on the ability of the president to govern. Let, let me give you a hypothetical example. We know that President Reagan had Alzheimer's um, at the end of his life. What if, this is just a hypothetical, this isn't true. Be, be clear, this isn't true. What if before he was elected, President Reagan or Ronald Reagan at the time confided in Smith, his lawyer, his personal lawyer, personal lawyer he paid money to, to represent him, to do his taxes and plan his, you know, whatever, his houses. What if Ronald Reagan and his wife, or one of them or both of them, had confided to the lawyer that Ronald Reagan had early Alzheimer's? He didn't, so it's a complete hypothetical, had early Alzheimer's. Um, so then the attorney general knows a fact that bears on the president's ability to govern effectively. But he knows that fact in a lawyer-client privileged way, and he can't disclose it. So he has an inherent conflict of interest. It's a fact that as attorney general of the United States might influence decisions regarding governance, but he can't disclose it and he can't reveal it. You know, that's why when a president serves as president, there are essentially three lawyers involved. Um, there is the Attorney General of the United States, which is the lawyer for the United States government appointed by the president. There is the Office of White House Counsel, which is the lawyer for the presidency. And then every president has had their own personal lawyers, uh, people they've gone to to prepare their wills, people they've gone to to do other things that lawyers do for um, individuals. And those three roles have to be kept separate. And that's important. But then that other role, the role of attorney general, is really two roles. And they can't be kept separate if you have one person doing it. You can't get up in the morning and say, all right, from eight in the morning until 12, I am the political advisor to the president whose goal is to try to get him reelected and make sure that the Democrats win and keep control of the House and the Senate. That's my job between 8 and 12. Then from 12 to 5, I have a different job. I have to decide who should be prosecuted and who shouldn't be prosecuted. Inevitably, those jobs are going to conflict because there will be instances where prosecuting or not prosecuting somebody 
is going to have an influence on the first job, on the electability of the president, on whether the Democrats keep the House or or the Senate. And so this this attorney generalship must be broken down into two roles. Now, defenders of the Justice Department will say it's already been done. It's already been done. The attorney general does advise the president. He sits in the cabinet. When it comes to decisions, who to prosecute, he doesn't consult with the president. He makes that decision on his own. Indeed, President Biden has said he did not know about the search warrant executed on the Trump Mar-a-Lago until after it was done. I believe him. I believe that's true. But can you imagine a decision being made to prosecute the potential nominee of the Republican Party who would run against the incumbent who is now president without the president knowing about it in advance? I I just find that hard to believe without knowing that people in the White House would, would know about it in advance, without some degree of interaction between the Justice Department and the White House. I just find that very, very hard to believe. And even if I believed it, I think the American public wouldn't believe it. In fact, a lot of Americans, I haven't seen any polls on this, but a lot of Americans from my mail and from what I've seen and, and read do not believe that the president of the United States didn't know about the raid of Mar-a-Lago. I believe it, but I cannot ask people out there who are more skeptical to believe it. So I just don't know um, how to restore trust to the current Justice Department the way it currently is set up. Uh, I just don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible. I think steps can be taken, and probably Attorney General Garland has taken those steps, and I think previous attorneys generals took those steps to separate out the prosecutorial function as much as possible from the political functions of the Justice Department. I think those steps have been taken. And they work in the ordinary course of events. But we don't live in the ordinary course of events. We live during crisis times. We live during periods of distrust. And I just don't think that in 2024, we can continue to have a Justice Department that has these two conflicting roles. I said that in 19-whatever when I wrote this book. I actually wrote it previously in columns. I taught it for many, many years. Uh, I've been a firm believer in breaking up the Justice Department. Now, today, you know, there's a motto by the right, break up the Justice Department. I'm not buying into that. I'm not buying into destroying the Justice Department, destroying the FBI. I think they both serve important functions. I just think we need a new office, an office of public prosecutions. And it's like making a special counsel not special anymore. We have a special counsel now for all cases. All right, I'm willing to compromise. Let's say we only have a special counsel for cases that in any way involve politics. So ordinary commerce clause cases, fraud cases, Medicaid fraud cases. I'm prepared to leave that to the Justice Department. I'd rather not. I'd rather have everything turned over to a director of public, public prosecutions. But hey, I'm a reasonable guy. And if we can just have everything that has to do with politics, have a special division of the Justice Department or a special division of the government of the United States called Director of Public Prosecution, whose only job it is to decide who to get prosecuted and who not to get prosecuted. Again, a civil servant, can't fire him except for good cause, um, tenure term, 
um, you know, it's possible they could be compromised too. That's the way the FBI was set up. The FBI now has a 10 year term and uh, director of the FBI, uh, generally by tradition, is not going to be fired except for good cause. It's, it's certainly possible it could be done. And we saw that Donald Trump was threatening to fire everybody. And uh, it wasn't right when he did it. And uh, it's not right what's going on today. So I, I want to break up the Justice Department. I want to keep it as two separate units. I don't want to destroy it. I want to expand it, change it, make it better. Um, I think it can be done legislatively. I don't think it will be done legislatively because I think politics has played too much of a role in how justice is administered in the United States today. But at least, hey, I can suggest it. And I'd be interested in knowing what your views were. And please keep your views nonpartisan, nonpolitical. Don't write me letters saying, oh, this would be good for Trump. This would be good for Biden. This would. No, I want to know what would be good for America. What would be good for the future? And let's even take it out of the current situation, should Trump be um, indicted or not, and just put it in the more general situation. What would be best for the country? And I challenge anybody to tell me that it wouldn't be better to have a separate unit, director of public prosecution, whose only job it is to decide whether to prosecute, not a member of the cabinet, not a political appointee, very, very different than the current uh, situation. It was the way the FBI was supposed to be, but now people think that may have been compromised. I'm not there yet. I still am a big supporter of the FBI in general. Uh, there are some rotten apples. There have been plenty of rotten apples. I know I've cross-examined them, uh, some of them, and I've gotten some of them indicted, and I've uh, argued cases against some of them. John Connolly is a perfect example. Uh, one of the heads of the FBI in Boston, who's now serving a long prison term, for having taken bribes from uh, Whitey Bulger and having tipped off Whitey Bulger to help him escape arrest for many years. So there are going to be bad apples everywhere. Justice Department has had bad apples. Harvard Law School has had bad apples. Uh, everybody has had bad apples. Uh, we had a bad apple who was the dean of the Harvard Law School who didn't pay his taxes for many, many years, uh, Dean Landis. Uh, you know, and then he, he, he apologized and, and didn't serve any time in prison. Had he not been the dean, maybe he, maybe he would have. I don't know. In any event, there's a big difference between individuals uh, who make mistakes and, and, and institutions. Okay, let me go to some uh, letters today. And uh, I want to make a point today. I, I have two groups of letters. One group of letters is from uh, YouTube. And the other group of letters is from Rumble. And it's as if I have two different shows. The Rumble letters are mostly idiots, um, mostly um, uh, just people who scream and yell and, you know, pedophile and Jeffrey Epstein's Island. And, you know, what do they call bots? I don't know. They're, 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 they, if they're real people, that's an insult to real people. Uh, most of the letters I get on Rumble are just not worth reading. Um, they're despicable. There are some very, very good ones, but most of them are just despicable. But then, and you know who you are. You know who you are, the ones out there. I'm not talking about ones who criticize me. That's fine. I love critical letters. These are ones that just, just engage in, in, in just name calling and, and make no sense at all. But then there are the letters from YouTube. And I just, for the first time, my son handed me the batch of letters from YouTube. I'd never seen them before. 
and they are completely different. Maybe they're too praiseworthy, but almost all of them are serious, intelligent, thoughtful, and, and positive. I'll, I'll read a couple. Pink Panther. Professor Dershowitz is a man of principles. Can you answer this question? Was the nuclear deal with Iran really a treaty or not? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, yes, it was a treaty. Obama said it wasn't a treaty because he couldn't get two-thirds of the Senate to agree with it. And so he circumvented the Constitution and called it an executive agreement, which led Trump, of course, to rescind it. Because if a president can just make an agreement, another president can rescind it. If it's a treaty, it's much harder to rescind. Um, so, I mean, that's a good question. And there's a good answer. Uh, another question. Professor Dershowitz, do you still not let unvaccinated people into your home? Uh, do you still feel the same about it? And the answer is yes. I ask everybody whether they've been vaccinated. If they haven't been, I'll meet with them outside. They have to wear a mask. I have to wear a mask. But I'm concerned about uh, about COVID. Um, and, and I'm going to take whatever precautions there are. Will it work? You know, you can make arguments that vaccines don't work. You can make arguments that they don't stop the spread of the disease. We know that they do help people not die from the disease, but uh, reasonable people disagree about that, but I'm entitled to make my own judgment. You didn't ask me whether I would pass a law saying people who aren't vaccinated can't go into other people's homes. That's a different question. They're not coming to my home. You have to be vaccinated. Um, if you have a medical reason for not being vaccinated, I have a relative who has uh, a reason for that. Uh, that's very different. You make sure that they're isolated. You make sure everything is taken taken care of, but uh, you take whatever precautions you want to take for your family. Professor Dershowitz is one of the few liberals with integrity. He didn't leave the left. The left left him. Well, I haven't left yet, or they haven't left me yet, but I'm obviously fighting with them. What the heck, Alan? The library canceled you? Good grief. That's despicable. I'm a conservative, but I've often admired your principal positions, ideas, and demeanor. Wow. Some people of your left-leaning crowd are so myopic-minded that they even treat their own uh, in, this, in this way, their own heroes with contempt. That's true. I was a hero to the left when my constitutional law analysis supported the left. They thought I was just a leftist who was supporting them. People come to me all the time and say, I used to admire you. My answer is always the same. You shouldn't have ever admired me. You never understood me. I wasn't on your side. I was on the side of the Constitution. The Constitution happened to come out on your side for this case. But no, that's not what I did it for. I'm not somebody committed to the Democratic Party or to the left. I'm committed to the Constitution and to principles. You know, I wrote the book, The Price of Principles. That's been my life. Principles, free speech for everybody, due process for everybody, complete equality and meritocracy, not this phony equity that people are now talking about, which is the opposite of meritocracy and equality. So, okay. Um, Mr. Dershowitz, I'm sure you and I would disagree on politics, as I am very conservative-leaning libertarian. Having said that, I believe that you're one of the most fair-minded and unbiased people I've ever listened to. I have so much respect for your amazing insights. The simple fact that you would be willing to go on the record to defend former President Trump, not his character or politics, but his presumed innocence against an obviously unveiled witch hunt, uh, et cetera. And then he goes on to say, I thoroughly believe in O.J. Simpson's guilt. That, that's OK. You're, you're entitled to do that. Uh, this is a good question, a serious question. I have heard some argue 
that magistrate judges, you know, they are the kind of junior judges, uh, Reinhardt, the guy who signed the search warrant for the search of Mar-a-Lago is a magistrate judge. They used to be called just magistrates. And they did the kind of scud work that judges have to do. They did the hearings. They did preliminary this, preliminary that. They monitored this. They important, important jobs, but not what the senior judge did. Uh, but then they got promoted and they got to be called magistrate judges. But they are not Article Three judges. What does that mean? The Constitution provides for life tenure uh, for certain judges, and they are Article Three judges. These are not Article Three judges. They're not pursuant to the Constitution. And there are some who have argued that a non-Article Three judge should not be involved in criminal cases because a criminal defendant has the right to have a full Article Three confirmed by the Senate lifetime appointed judge. The courts have not accepted that. And uh, it seems to me, although there's an argument so far, that argument has not prevailed. Okay, next question. You will be happy to know that my local library will acquire a copy of The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I have news to report. My local library, the Chilmark Library, has agreed to accept gifts from me of all the books that they didn't have that I wrote after I started to defend President Trump. Once I started to defend President Trump, the Chilmark Library stopped getting my books. You couldn't go to the library and get a copy of any book I wrote after I started defending Trump. You could get 20 books that I wrote before that, but not a single book that I wrote after that. So as usual, I complained. And I wrote to the lawyer for the library and I said, I'm prepared to give you those books if you will make them part of your collection. And he agreed. And this morning he picked them up and brought them over to the library. And from now on, the Chilmark Library hopefully will have all of my books. Uh, maybe someday they'll even allow me to speak, to, to, to walk over the threshold and, 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 and attract the large crowds that I've always attracted. You know, let them restrict the number of people. That's, that's fine. But it's nice that a library uh, outside of uh, Massachusetts uh, is, is, is buying my book. Uh, hmm? We're in Massachusetts. We're, no, that a library outside of Massachusetts has agreed, a letter has agreed to buy my book. I'm also thrilled that a library in Massachusetts finally finally has my book. So you don't have to get a library to get it. You can get it on Amazon. You can read it, uh, write me letters about it. And uh, I'm sure there'll be important news tomorrow to talk about. So come back to the Dirt Show.